Amen. Well, good morning. I do love the Thanksgiving season. It fills up the airports, unfortunately empties the churches. But we're used to that as pastors. We know to expect it. Open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. Exactly one year ago, we preached a message titled, Tempted, Tested, and Triumphant. And that was all the way back in Mark 1. If you were not with us then, or perhaps newer attenders, I want to encourage you to head over to Sermon Audio and be very blessed by that message. Was the actual temptation given, what was the actual temptation given to Jesus? It's not what many might think on the surface, and it will be an encouragement for you as you face the daily temptations of life, and you know what a Savior we have. Many thanks to Grant and Diana, of course, for leading us in song with Brady away, particularly as we head into the Christmas season. We're so thankful for the talent of our musicians and those with artistic talent that help us make melody in our hearts unto the Lord. Well, many have expressed gratefulness to the Lord for the growth and for the vitality that we're experiencing at Harrison Hills. But let us understand what it is that's actually growing. If we want to know about church growth, we have to look to the book of Acts, don't we? And if we were to read the Acts of the Apostles, all 28 chapters, you would find 37 references to the growth of the church. 37 places that talk about the Lord growing his church. But it's not exactly what we think. Just for a little breakdown, of those 37 references, six of them equate growth to the character of the Christians involved in the verses attributed the growth to the supernatural evidences, like signs and wonders that God performed through the miracles of the apostles to authenticate the message they were bringing. This also brought growth. But guess what, saints? 24 of those references, 24 out of the 37, equate and attribute the growth of the church with the preaching of the Word of God. In fact, it gets even better than that. If we look at Acts 12, verse 24, it says, But the Word of God increased and multiplied when talking about the growth of the church. The growth of the church is literally the growth of the Word. How's the church doing? Well, the Word of God is increasing and multiplying. No, I asked how the church is doing. I know. The word of God is increasing and multiplying. One equals the other. The growth of the church is equal to the growth of the word of God. God stands behind his word. He's fully invested in his word. And if we will be a people of the book, we will increase and we will multiply as God intended. If we will preach the whole counsel of God, he will increase and multiply as God intended. If we will be as the Bereans, if we will search the scriptures to see if it is so, even if it comes from the pulpit, we will increase and multiply as God intended. If our hearts will prize what our mouths profess, the word of God, we will increase and multiply as God intended. Amen? Amen. Well, last week we began part one of our two-part series titled, A Tale of Two Eyes. First with the Pharisees. And now today with the disciples, we would see two forms of blindness. Last week was a tragic blindness. It was a blindness that was unto death. The Pharisees could not see because they would not see. And in great tragedy, we witnessed the Son of God leave them in their sin. And we learned that human inability is in, is in part the result of human disobedience. The Pharisees could not see, and yet God was good and just to leave them in their sin. 
their judgment will be just, as painful as it is. Such was the pain of Jesus witnessing the hardness of the Pharisees' hearts. He knew their eternal fate was sealed. That's why he gave that deep sigh. And in a deep sigh that we as believers can at some level identify with when we watch the news or when we witness a friend or a family member that's living under the incredible weight of the world, laboring under the brutal taskmaster of sin, we sigh deeply, we groan within ourselves. Oh, that they might turn from their idols, that they might be reconciled to a loving and a merciful and a forgiving God. But the Pharisees wanted a Messiah on their terms. Didn't they? Their system of Judaic idolatry had fashioned a Messiah that was so devoid of what the Old Testament said they should look for that they couldn't see him when he stood right in front of them. They thought they were the guardians and the gatekeepers of the law on God's behalf. Yet the only thing that they were guarding was their own self-righteousness, their position, their honor, their renown in the marketplaces, the esteem of men under the guise of serving God. That's all that they were actually guarding. Every one of these traps and follies were warned about and warned against in their own Torah, in the very scriptures that, they were, that were breathed out by God. Yet legalism blinds the mind. The legalist cannot see Christ. Why? Because Christ is all sufficient. And the legalists must have their contribution. That Jesus stood in front of the Pharisees. The Jesus that did stand in front of the Pharisees is an all-consuming, all-sufficient, all-loving God. He is the all in all, and he's not going to share his throne with our works. He's not going to do it. When a heart is being hardened, more light only causes it to further retreat, to further harden. Last week was the point of no return for these Pharisees, wasn't it? In one of the least recognized, least recognized but most tragic verses in all of Scripture, verse 13 last week, Mark writes that Jesus left them. Not just physically, he was removing his presence, his light, his calling. He was leaving them in the darkness that they had repeatedly shown that they preferred. Every messianic miracle had been done in their presence. The light was blinding and they would not see. And now Jesus will leave so they cannot see. Their disobedience would now be their inability. It is only the presence of Jesus Christ that can cause a heart to turn. If he gets in the boat and he leaves, time's up. Time's up. We have spiritual blindness all around us, don't we? It's part of living in a fallen world. In fact, speaking of most of humankind, Paul tells the Corinthians that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. This is the blindness that is unto death. When Jesus got in the boat and leaves, their very ability to turn and behold the Lamb of God leaves with him. This is a condition that simultaneously causes us to pray even more fervently for our lost family members, that Jesus did not leave them in their darkness, but it gives us also a renewed thankfulness from God that found us when we were dead in our sins, and he drew us to himself with an irresistible grace. When we were haters of God, when we drank in our iniquity like water, when we had no thought for the things of God, we all remember that season in our lives, don't we? He found us, he saved us, and he rescued us. Just as real as you are sitting here today, these Pharisees from last week, they're not just characters in a story. 
They were real people, now with no opportunity to come to repentance and faith. Thankfully, that's not the case for anyone hearing this message. If you are hearing this, it is the grace of God on your life. It is an olive branch extended where we did not deserve it. If your life has been blind up to this point, it need not be a second longer. You may come in repentance and faith today, not tomorrow. Not tomorrow. Charles Spurgeon lamented, quote, Oh, that little word, now. It is often the saving word to sinners. And to the Christian, it is the quickening word. But tomorrow, who shall tell how many souls it has destroyed? Devouring them as the grave devoureth the slain. Alas, for the mischiefs of that demon word, tomorrow. Close quote. Yet what a grace that today is still called today for everyone listening. The eyes of the Pharisees, the eternity of the Pharisees need not be your fate. Well, today we move to our second pair of eyes, that of the disciples. Blinded, yes, but not blinded unto death. A picture of those who are having the light of the gospel, the light of Christ revealed to them, but still so blind to the plain truths that surround us. Today's text is going to be an encouragement to those in the Lord. No matter how far along in the school of Christ you may be, how far down the path of sanctification, we're going to have an honest look at the disciples in our text this morning, that we might be brave enough to gaze into the mirror of our own hearts, if we dare. So with that, let's have a look at our text, our wonderful text, Mark 8, 14 through 21. Mark 8, 14 through 21. And they had forgotten to take bread and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. And he was giving orders to them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive... Or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? They said to him, 12. And when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, as is so often the case in the Gospel of Mark, we are forced to walk right into a mirror that we may see ourselves as we actually are. Lord, that we see ourselves in the light of the disciples so often. Lord, we ask that you would give us soft hearts to receive your word this morning. We ask that the arrow would find its mark. We ask that the Holy Spirit would attend to its word and do its work. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, a number of years ago, I traveled to a small town in rural Utah to check on a church plant that we had supported since its launch. Now, this was a very rural area, and as you can imagine, it was heavily, heavily under Mormon influence. Now, from this pastor's house outside the town, the four or so houses that we could see from his front door were all occupied by sister wives. This was an area that actually practiced open polygamy. 
And the number of evangelical Christians as a percentage there was approximately 1% of the population of that county. To give you some context, there are some of identified Christians in them than this county in Utah. To say that this was a challenging area for the pastor and his family would have been a great understatement. The trials that they experienced were immense. Everything in this town was under the church's control. And initially, they were unable to even lease a building to launch, to launch in, to, to launch the church. Their applications for leases kept getting denied, getting your, their utilities turned on they couldn't even get done. You name it. Every, they did everything that they could to shut this pastor down and to drive him out of town. Well, as the church began to grow, as small numbers, very small numbers of people began coming to faith in Christ, this pastor was very quickly confronted with a truth that he had not yet fully anticipated. These people who were coming to faith in Christ in this community, who were getting baptized by this Christian pastor, they gave up everything to follow Christ. Almost without exception, to come and be baptized and to join this Christian church as a member of this community, most if not all lost their jobs. Many of them were kicked out of their homes, divorced by their spouses, ostracized and rejected by the community. Now that's hard to imagine in 21st century America. But this pastor not only experienced it himself as an outsider, but he witnessed the price that the new believers were paying for their faith, with almost no exceptions. To come to faith in Christ was seen as turning your back on your family, an apostate heretic, and worthy of being disowned. You will never work in this town again, literally. Well, one element that we've, that's missed as we watch the journey of the disciples, all the way from having a, a thriving fishing business, being called by Jesus to follow him as they were tending to their nets on the shore, is the very high price that was paid. Understand, saints, that the religion of the Pharisees, the apostate religion of the Pharisees, was the controlling and the dominant force in all of Judaic life. When you left to follow Jesus, you were instantly a traitor to your people. You were culturally rejecting the religion of your nation. You were turning your back on your family. The disciples weren't breaking God's law in the Torah. Jesus never broke one legitimate law. But law did not actually rule the roost. Tradition masquerading as law is what ruled the roost. And that Jesus would not abide. That he rejected. So consider what caused the, Pharisee, the Pharisees to cue in on Jesus to begin with. What was it that Jesus started doing that got their attention? What was always their complaint? That you're healing too many people? No. Why aren't your disciples washing their hands properly? Why are they picking grain on the Sabbath? Right? None of these are laws of God. They were laws of men. But to reject and to follow Jesus was to reject in part these laws of men. To do so, to turn your back, it was to turn your back on everything that made you a Jew. Everything. Your very Jewishness, if I can say, was tied up in the ceremony, in the customs, in the laws, and in the, tradi in the traditions. To reject the Pharisees in their ways, understand the cost to these men. This was a theocracy. The Pharisees ruled, and they were the self-appointed gatekeepers. If they told a restaurant to not serve you, guess what? That restaurant would not serve you. Something the dear saints in rural Utah could very well understand. And I share this aspect of the disciples' life because we need to be balanced with these men. 
We need to be in their sandals, understanding their highs and their lows. It sometimes seems that we're coming down hard on them, but in truth, as we've often said, we would have responded or reacted no better than they did had it been us. The benefit of hindsight is all important. So as we look at another of our scenes today, this is challenging for the disciples, but let us be of charitable heart. Let us be of charitable heart towards them. These men, with the exception of Judas, have all been born again at this point. They love Jesus. They desire to serve him. They've likely given up family members, social standing to follow Jesus, their businesses. All of these men have already paid more for their faith than most in Lanesville 2021 will thankfully ever have to know. But for the Pharisees and for the masses in our world, we have seen that there is a blindness that is eternal. There is a spiritual blindness that is a death unto death. When Jesus got in the boat and went away, all hope left with him. But in that boat were the disciples. There were the disciples. Jesus has not left or abandoned his own. In fact, it's just the opposite. Jesus is pouring into them. He's being patient. He's being gracious with them. He can look at them and know that almost every one of them are going to give their lives in brutal fashion for their testimony. Jesus knows this already. He knows how each one of them are even going to die. I'm sure that colors his compassion as well. Jesus has not left them. No, he has brought them along in the boat. The light is with them. The light is with them. But the same light has very different effects on these two sets of eyes between the Pharisees and the disciples. It kind of reminded me of the lyrics of a a contemporary song that reads, The same sun that melts the wax can harden clay. And the same rain that drowns the rat will grow the hay. And the mighty wind that knocks us down If we lean into it, we'll drive our fears away. Same light, same heat, same truth. Two very different responses. The disciples are born again at this point. The heart of stone, the heart of clay has been removed and they've been given hearts of flesh. Hearts of soft wax that are slowly becoming more soft and more tender as the light permeates every facet of their thinking and of their conscience. If you're born again, we're no different. Saints, sanctification is a process, and the school of Christ has long semesters, and sadly, we don't graduate until glorification. Until then, even though our hearts are flesh, we struggle. The disciples struggled. We are in a body that we are called to crucify daily to its lusts and to its desires. Our mind, even though it's being renewed day by day, is still fallen. We're still knuckleheads, aren't we? Well, it's nobody in here, of course. This is for the people listening online. <laughs> so without further elaboration, let's dive into our first verse. Wonderful. Verse 14. And they had forgotten to take bread and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. Now, this may sound like a mere reporting of the facts, but there's so very much to see here. First, a bit of geography to kind of keep us oriented. Jesus has gotten into a boat twice now in the last two weeks, right? First, to head over to Dalmanutha, which is essentially back between Magdala and Capernaum. And now, having been confronted by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Back in the boat he goes over to the northeastern side of the lake, over to the area of Bethsaida. 
Now, that name, Bethsaida, should sound very familiar to you. The last time you saw it was Mark 6, verse 45. Turn your Bibles just two pages back for me, if you would. Mark 6, verse 45. What do we see? Mark 6, verse 45. And immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side to Bethsaida. And if we were to keep on reading, we would see the great storm that came upon them. Jesus walking out on the water to them. Peter walking out on the water to Jesus. Big stuff happening the last time that they got into a boat and headed to Bethsaida, wasn't it? Big stuff. Now, I would think that this would evoke waves of recent memories. And yet, while they're on the same path to Bethsaida, where such enormous events happen, while they had just witnessed the feeding of the 16,000 and a brutal clash between Jesus and the Pharisees, where is their mind in our text today? Food. Food. They're like Baptists on Sunday morning when pastor goes long on the message. Wrap it up, pastor. The football ain't going to watch itself, right? Where is their mind at? And they had forgotten to take bread, our text says. They had forgotten to take bread. Their mind is on their stomachs. And here's what makes this statement incredible. The very next line. What's in their pocket? What's in their pocket? And did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. They have a loaf. But saints, where did that loaf come from? In all likelihood, it came from the master's hands when he fed the 16,000. Can you imagine complaining about having no food? And say, yep, all we've got is this one loaf here from, you know, when the master multiplied the loaves and the fishes. What are we going to do? It's in their hands. The most tangible reminder of God's provision and power is staring at them. Manna, quite literally, from heaven. Ah, but only one loaf. Whatever will we do? But Mark's point here is not the loaf necessarily. Mark's point is that we were not focused where we should have been focused. And how do we know that? Well, verse 15 tells us that. Verse 15. And he was giving orders to them, saying... Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Jesus completely sidesteps them on their hunger issues, right? It's like my kids when they come to me and say, Dad, I'm hungry. I say, Hi, hungry, I'm Dad, right? Just completely sidesteps them. And this is not one passive sentence from Jesus, as we see here in our text. Jesus imploring them to watch out here, watch out is in the imperfect tense, meaning it was continual, meaning Jesus was banging on this drum. When Mark recorded, what Mark records here is one sentence by Jesus was actually part of a, a large discourse that Jesus was giving out on this boat here. Watch out, watch out. Saints, when the creator of the universe tells us to watch out, we should be inclined to listen. All the disciples can think is, yeah, Great, good teaching, good stuff, Jesus, yep, good advice, good doctrine, good theology, Pharisees bad, Jesus good. Now about our food. And yet Jesus is giving them what they actually need now. Warning, take heed, watch out. Watch out for what? The leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Well, anytime we see leaven in Scripture, it's a bad thing. 
Leaven and yeast that makes le- leaven is yeast that makes dough rise. I know we have many in our congregation who love to bake. And how much yeast does it take? Tiny bit. Tiny bit, just a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Just a small amount of the teaching of the Pharisees, just that shred of legalism is going to corrupt and defile a person. Watch out. Watch out. It's throughout Scripture. We see leaven associated with pride in 1 Corinthians 6, with bitterness and anger in 1 Corinthians 5.8, with false teaching in Galatians 9. It's all over. Watch out. Be diligent, be militant, be pedantic about keeping this leaven out of your lives. The leaven of the Pharisees, rooted in pride, self-righteousness, legalism, that way leads to death. It leads to death. So many on that day saying, Lord, Lord, we knew you. Theirs will be the error of the Pharisees. I kept every law. Well, first of all, no, you didn't. No, you didn't. We don't get past the very first law that was given in thunder on Mount Sinai. The very first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Bang, we're dust right out of the gate. Something is always on the throne of our heart. Something occupies the throne of our affections always at any given time. If that thing is not God, if he at any given moment of our life was not our highest affection and love, we've put a God, small g, before him. First commandment has us dead to rights. It has us dead to rights. You see the folly of legalism? You see the error of the Pharisees? Don't even tread down this road. Your tires are going to be flat before you even pull out. That's why we need a savior. That's the purpose of the law. Not to give us a list of rules to follow like the Pharisees, but to show us our incredible need for Messiah. Now, I've given you the analogy many times of the mirror in the bathroom in the morning, right? that shows us exactly as we are. That's the law. And if that's what I really look like, I need a shower and I need a brush that only God can give. And we don't argue with the mirror. We don't tell the mirror that it's wrong. We know the reflection is true. So it is with God's law. Back to our text, the response from the disciples. It's almost comical here. The disciples hear Jesus using yeast as a metaphor. But guess where their mind is? Bread. They're hungry. Talk about hearing what you want to hear. This is a, th- these are people with a one-track mind right now. Beware of the leaven, the yeast of the Pharisees. You hear that? Jesus said yeast. We don't have any bread. Jesus knows we don't have any bread. And he keeps talking about yeast, making me hungry. No. And we know that this is what the disciples were doing. How do we know? Look at our next verse. Verse 16. And they began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. Those are the facts. See how Mark says that? But are they? Well, yes and no. Facts are what God says they are. Number one, that's not the bread they need right now. They need the bread of life. They need to drink deeply of living water. They need to learn and be discipled. They need to join with Job when he cried out that he desires the word and he prizes the the word more than the very food of his stomach. That's where they need to get to. They have a massive lesson to learn here. A warning from the king of creation to watch out. That's not where they are right now. It's not where they are. They don't have their eternity goggles on, do they? They just have their temporal lenses on. What you just witnessed in the Pharisees 
That is the way of death. And the gaping jaws of hell will swallow Pharisees by the millions. Beware. Watch out. Danger ahead. Those who look good on the outside, but inside are dead men's bones. But notice, back in verse 15, where we just left, we see that Jesus was warning not just of the leaven of the Pharisees, but he warned of the leaven of Herod as well, didn't he? The leaven of Herod. Well, those who were here for our teaching on the beheading of John the Baptist and the depravity of Herod, they know very quickly what Jesus is saying here. Extreme immorality, sexual deviancy, just a little leaven, a little Herodian leaven can take you down. Do you compromise on what you're willing to watch on the TV or in a movie? A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Flee sexual immorality. Do not confuse legalism for holiness and righteousness. We are commanded to be holy as I am holy, Jesus said. Come on, we can watch this. Don't be a legalist. Don't be a legalist. That is a cunning lie. Don't be deceived. A little Herodian leaven will permeate it all. And Jesus' response to the disciples is a lesson for all. It's a lesson for pastors. It's a lesson for parents. Look at the gentleness of Jesus in his response. So convicting here. Verse 17. Verse 17. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Well, two things to notice here. One is that Jesus is not whacking them upside the head, right? That's an accomplishment for me. But two, Jesus is employing an excellent tactic and an apologetic tool here. He is using questions, See, saints, over the next three verses, he's going to bombard them with questions. Do you still not see? Do you still not understand? Are your hearts hardened? Can you not see? Can you not hear? Do you remember? Do you still not understand? Greg Kokel, in his book, Tactics, who I know some in here have read, advocates for this very technique when sharing spiritual truths with people, getting people to think and to reason. They say, never make a statement when you can use a question. Never make a statement when a question will do. This now puts the burden on the other person, right? They have to explain. They have to think it through. Well, Jesus makes plenty of statements to his disciples, but here he's using the questioning method. Coco calls it the Columbo tactic from the old TV show, right? Using questions. Draw it out of them. A question forces their gears to turn, and that's exactly what needs to happen here. Do you have a hardened heart? What a question. And it's an eminently appropriate question. Why? Because it's not the ignorant heart that hardens itself. It's the knowing heart. And the disciples know. They know. Those who are religious, those who are moralists, those who grew up in a Christian home, those are the ones that are pursued by a hard heart. It's not the ignorant only a knowing heart can harden itself. So it can be a very dangerous thing coming to church. A very dangerous thing. Because now you know. Those in the pew stand in the greatest danger of this. Jesus is calling for faith here. But we so often misunderstand. Faith is not autonomous or separate from a heart that has understanding. It is through that understanding that we have faith. 
The faith that Jesus is calling for here in the disciples is a faith that is born out of, that finds its genesis in, its beginnings in, understanding and insight. The disciples are not chastised here for not believing. They're rebuked for not seeing and understanding. Do we see that? Their priorities here are not God's priorities. The disciples are despairing about a lack of bread. And Jesus is despairing about their lack of faith. This is not a blind faith. This is a knowing faith. And if you know, if you know, then you are the ones at risk of a hard heart. A hard heart necessitates knowledge against which it hardens. So this is a mild rebuke of the disciples. It could have been much worse. But Jesus does what you and I are to do with each other when we despair. What does he do? Verse 18. Verse 18. Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? The beginning we've seen referenced many times from Deuteronomy 29.4. And we've taught on Jesus' meaning and usage of this phrase of, of having eyes and not seeing, having ears and not hearing. But I love this. How does it end? Do you not remember? Every person in here who has been saved out of darkness, who has been given a new heart and a new mind and a new desire, we can all say, do you not remember? Can we not encourage one another with that? Do you not remember? Every blood-bought person could put this up on their mantle and it would be precious to them. Do you not remember? How much of the Old Testament, how much is the prophets and the Lord telling the people, remember, remember, remember the Lord your God who did this and this for you. Do you not remember? It's one of the heaviest antidotes to becoming stale in your Christian walk is to remember. By way of reminder, stir yourselves up. Stir one another up. Remember what God has saved you from. You, who you were. Remember your first love, that being Jesus. These disciples are, what, verse 19 and 21 together. The disciples, they're us. They're us, saints. Verse 19 and 21 together. Do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? And they said to him, 12. When I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? This almost struck me as almost a parent with a child, doesn't it? It really does. You need to be focused on this lesson here. Instead, you're being distracted by your hunger. And yet Jesus meets them where they're at. He mildly rebukes them. This is the rebuke of a father to a son not of a judge to a criminal or of an enemy to an enemy. This is not a blindness that's unto death for the disciples. They've been born again. They've crossed the Rubicon, but we still get stuck in the mud. We take off our eternal lenses and we start navel-gazing. We lose sight of why we are here, what this whole walk is about. And it's not about filling our needs. It's not about constant satisfaction and comfort. We're here to become more like Christ. The disciples have less than a year. Less than a year until Messiah is going to leave them. They need to get this. 
And yet these failings are so beautiful. They're so necessary. Some of these disciples will be given the power to perform natural miracles. There cannot be any high horse here. I know where I came from. I know how thick-headed I can be. I know my own lack of faith that time and time again, right in the midst of God's faithfulness, I have not been faithful. I remember. I remember. Two sets of eyes in our series. Two cases of blindness. One, a blindness unto death. The presence of Jesus' light to them once again left them even harder than when they began. Jesus gets in the boat, and he leaves the religious elite to their self-righteousness. When Jesus leaves, he takes his light with him, and you cannot see without that light. Because they would not see, now they will never see. And in great tragedy, our text says that Jesus left them. And the abandonment, saints, was not in some sort of abstract future sense or an eternal, non-physical sense. He left them in this life. So those counting on a deathbed conversion don't. There will be a day for everyone that would harden their heart that Jesus gets in the boat and he leaves. And when the light leaves, it does not return, just as it did with the Pharisees. At that point, you cannot come. You do not possess the ability. The very enabler has left. He's left. Paul tells the Corinthians, the natural man does not understand the things of God. To him, their foolishness because they're spiritually discerned. For those that are lost, the thought of Jesus leaving them alone sounds just fine to them. That's just fine. But that's not the case in eternity. You don't get away from God. Soft peddlers of the gospel will try and define hell as an eternity separated from God. And millions of people just went, good! I spent my whole life separated from God. Eternity sounds just fine. Let's keep going. The problem is that hell is not a separation from God. Is God in hell? Yes, God is everywhere. But it is not his gracious presence that is there. It is not his presence of mercy and forgiveness that presides there. It's his wrath. Scripture says that our God is a consuming fire. Hell is not an eternity separated from God. Hell is an eternity in the presence of God without a mediator. No one to shield you from the attributes of God that must punish sin if he be a good judge. Jesus Christ is the mediator. He is the mediator. Jesus Christ bore our sins. He took our punishment. He bore the wrath of God. And we cover ourselves in him. We hide ourselves in him like the heat shield on the space shuttle re-entering the atmosphere. That may sound like a harsh view and not one that you often hear in 2021 but it is the truth. And it only serves to highlight the love of a father that would save us from that eternity. Such love, none of us can fathom. And today our blindness of the disciples was not a blindness unto death, but represents us so very well at times. How often are we consumed with the cares of this world, stuck staring at our own belly button? Jesus wants us to look up. Look up. He's teaching us. He's warning us in his word and through his people. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. I have a job for you to do, and I am preparing you. The Lord knows that you have needs physically. He made you to have those needs. He'll meet them. 
the, the Lord is graciously, and he's patiently taught the disciples that should have known better. But are we not all in that boat? It's not changed today. Through the teaching and the preaching of the word, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives and, and hearts to instruct us, Jesus tells us to watch out. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. Do you not remember? I will take care of you. I will provide. Keep your eyes on me. Remember your first love. Remember what I've done for you, what I will continue to do for you. Faithful Jesus, faithful God. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the mirror of Scripture. We thank you for the mirror of the law. Lord, we know that if it were not for you, Lord, that the law would, would crush us. But you have been so good. You have been so gracious to save us and undeserving people. Lord, help us to look honestly at this text. Help it to reside deeply in our heart that we may draw upon it in the weeks to come. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.